you have your Bible, your copy of God's Word, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. I'm uh, going to be looking at part of 6 and part of 7. Uh, I'll go ahead and let you know we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 in Genesis 6, and then 17 through 22, and then the first 12 verses of Genesis chapter 7. Uh, today we're talking about lessons from the flood. What, what, what really do we glean from the flood, other than the fact that water covered the land, right? Everybody died. What is it that, that God's speaking to mankind through this uh, event of judgment, and yet an event of mercy, and also in the flood we see the obedience of one man, Noah, toward the Lord God. And so uh, if you have your Bibles and your turn there, you can follow along. Of course, I will have it up on the screen so that you can follow along with me. Uh, but let's read uh, the passages and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and then we will uh, pray that the Holy Spirit just speak to our hearts and minds. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, it says, These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. You know, Noah walked with God. That's, that, that echoes Enoch, right, who walked with God. And we see the legacy we talked about last week. Now, two generations later, that's still Enoch. Now, his grandson is walking with God, or great-grandson. I'm sorry, I don't want to offend. Lamech. Noah walked with God, verse 10, And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with wickedness. Listen, sin in the world is not a new thing. When we look at the world around us, and we see that it seems to have, uh, it just, it's dissipating day after day after day, becoming more vile, becoming more wicked, I would just uh, re remind you that this has been true in every generation. We, we, have, we see it more visibly now, right? You turn on the television, you see what's going on all around the world instantly. It used to take six months to know what's going on in the Middle East. And so we see it very instantly. We're a very fast food type society where we want everything right then as soon as it happens. And so we just happen to be seeing everything going on all around the world all in real time. But this is not new. Verse 12 says, God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Here's just a quick paraphrase. Every creature was doing what God had not designed it to do. God had created things. We were talking about the consequences of sin. That's kind of what we're looking at as we go through Genesis. God created everything with a purpose, and now we see everything God created is in fact going against the very purposes that God created them for. Verse 13, Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Now verse 17, God speaking to Noah says, Understand that I'm bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. This judgment of God, it's also not only a, a judgment of man, but also the earth. Very similar to the Adamic curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the ground in which Adam would work. And now in Noah's age, seven generations later, again we see that the judgment of God will consume the earth again. In verse 18, God speaking to Noah says, But I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your sons' wives. 
You are also to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kind, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. I would just That may be something you want to underline right there. He did everything that God commanded him. As we go through this passage, these passages, you're going to find this is a repeated theme. This is one of the, the, the really big topics, themes that Moses, through writing the book of Genesis, is trying to get across to us as God's people, that Noah was obedient. That he did everything God commanded him. Right down to the very inch, he did what God commanded him to do. He didn't look for shortcuts or, or look for a way around or a way to, to get it done quicker. I just want to tell you this. Your walk with God will only grow if you put the time in. If you're obedient, you're not going to mature in Christ overnight. It takes some work. It takes some effort. But if you're obedient to God, God will be faithful to you. In chapter 7, we continue to read about the account. Listen, I'm just skipping the measurements. Are y'all okay? If you want to know the measurements of the ark, you can read what I have skipped. Okay? It's big. It's a big flat-bottom boat. Uh, Then the Lord said to Noah, chapter 7, verse 1, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs male and female, the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I'll make it rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing I have made, I will wipe off of the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. There it is again. You might want to underline it. And Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. This is what it means to be righteous or to walk with God. Verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the floodwaters. From the animals that are clean, from the animals that are not clean, and from the birds and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. This is important. This is God detailing how this worked physically, biologically, whatever the word would be for our natural uh, resources. Up to this point, it had not rained. Up to this point, remember that water came from underneath the earth and watered all all the vegetation. So it tells us that it came from the watery depths, they burst open, but it also says the floodgates of the sky were opened. And the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you speak to our hearts and our minds. That through the, uh, the story, the record of Noah and his family, the story of obedience, of mercy, of judgment, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts where we are today. The circumstances that we face today, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word, that we would leave this place different than we came in, that we would know you in a new way. We would, Lord, know you better than we did when we came in. 
And we would leave this place not having heard about God, but having experienced God, which is our desire. And so, Lord, bring us together, unify us as the body of Christ, one together, one body, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one Savior, Jesus Christ. Edify this body so that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to start here. Of course, you know, I have my points that I want to make that I write throughout the week, and then I never really do those points when I come up to preach. But I will today, I'm pretty sure. Uh, But there are a few things I do want to point out just uh, because they, they are remarkable to me. The first is, if you were to go back to the Genesis 1 account of creation, God separates the waters below from the waters above. And on this day where God separates the water, God does something unique. He does something that He typically doesn't do in creation. At the end of that creation, at the end of that day, God did not say it was good. If you read the Genesis 1 account, you'll read God did this, He created this. It was the first day God said it was good, or God saw that it was good. But when God gets to separating the waters below from the waters above, that day God looks and He does not declare in Genesis 1 that this is good. Now that we've read Genesis 6 and and part of Genesis 7, you can kind of understand why God looking ahead, knowing all things, being sovereign, not limited by time, but living every moment of history and future all at one time. I know that's a lot to take in, right? God's living every moment that's ever existed, that ever will exist. He functions outside of what we know as time. God knowing when he separated the waters that one day those waters would once again be reunited, and when they were reunited, it would mean the destruction of mankind. I love how the Bible fits together. If we really read and study it, we notice little uh, idiosyncrasies like, man, why doesn't God say it's good when he separates the water? This seems to be a good thing. It gives us an atmosphere. Yeah, because God already knowing in creation that those two bodies of water those from the vast depths and those from above would once again be reunited in judgment on mankind and the world. So that's one thing I want you to see. Jot that down, note it, go back and read it. It's pretty interesting. It's not the focus of my sermon today. It's not, it's not an essential doctrine that we believe as Baptists or evangelicals or even Protestants. But it is interesting to note that God's Word always correlates with itself. It, the, the passages that correspond to one another fit perfectly together like a hand in a glove. And so there is no... It's not that Moses was being absent-minded as the Holy Spirit led him and he just forgot to say on this day it was good too. There's a reason that Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Y'all know Moses wrote Genesis, right? I mean, I, I'm assuming that. I shouldn't. All right, Moses wrote Genesis, okay? Now it makes sense why Moses is who I'm talking about. There's a reason Moses leaves that out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is a foreshadowing, a looking ahead, so that when we read what happens, we understand God was not looking forward to the flood. God, didn't, God wasn't like really proud, sitting on his throne like, man, I just can't wait in seven chapters of what Moses writes. I'm about to flood this whole thing. 
No, God is a, a loving, merciful God. And when God looked ahead and saw this is going to be required for the sins of the world, this is going to be required for judgment to be brought about, it's not something I'm looking forward to. It's not something I delight in. It's something I have to do because of the character of who I am as God. I am a just God, and therefore there must be judgment passed. So you want to know uh, the kind of God that we serve? This, this lets us in. It gives us just a little speck of hope, of understanding that our God wasn't happy or looking forward to or interested in the destruction of mankind. He created man. Why? To have fellowship with him. Not to destroy him. There are many people who look at God and their view is that God is this angry God. All right, this angry God just waiting to... Past judgment. That's not the God of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Many people think the God of the Old Testament is this horrible, barbaric God. You haven't read it. If you believe God's an angry, barbaric God, you haven't read the Old Testament. God never delights in destruction. Scriptures replete with the notion that God desires reconciliation. You look at the entire Old Testament and it is God pleading with His people, repent. Judgment's coming, so repent, so judgment doesn't have to come. And yet, what do the people do? They continue in, in a lifestyle where repentance is the furthest thing from their mind. They live however they want to live. Make, make sure you understand this. Living in rebellion to God means I'm living by my own standards, what I want to do, where I want to go, what I want to say, what I want to read, what I want to give. Living in repentance with God means you turn away from what you want and you turn to what God desires. And when you do that, can I just encourage you, when you do that, there's so much more waiting on for you in repentance than you could ever have in your isolation from God because of your own selfishness. Make, make sure you hear that. There's so much waiting on those who repent and turn from their own selfishness and pride and they turn to God than what we receive when we live our life by our own standards and do it by our own way. This is a, this is a depiction of the flood. This is, just, this is what the flood's telling us. God doesn't want your destruction. God has plans for you, and we know what the Old Testament says. He wants you to prosper and succeed. He wants you to be a walking testimony of His love and His goodness. God wants unbelievers to see believers and say, I want what they have. I want the relationship they have with God because they're not who they used to be. There's something different about them. They're weird, but weird in a good way. They're not like the other people in the world, but... But it's a good thing. Can I just point this out as well? It is God alone who can bring judgment and pass judgment. It's not the church's job to pass judgment. God is the just. He is the judge who will judge. Be careful because the way you judge others will be the measure God uses when he judges you. And here's what I found. Man is a whole lot more judgmental than God in Scripture. And the church is more judgmental than lost. We should understand what it means to be forgiven. We should understand what it means to have the love of God poured upon us and the mercy of God poured out in our life. 
If we haven't received so much from God, how can we not give that to others? Repentance. Obedience. Can you picture this? Here the waters are separated. Water's been coming up from the vast depths. We know this is true today, right? I mean, it's, if you look at like the Sahara Desert, it's amazing how much water is underneath the ground there. And so God creates a system where water comes up from underneath to water the vegetation. He separated. We have this beautiful atmosphere. There was no global warming in, in Adam's day or Noah's day, right? And yet it, that partition that separated the waters when the flood came, the skies opened and the ground burst forth. I want to say something to, to some of my science friends. Because right, I have friends who hold a different view of Genesis. Let me just tell you right up front, I'm not bashing them. In fact, I'm not even going to say I'm right and they're wrong. Here's what I want to say. If you see the flood and you understand the flood to mean that God brings judgment on sin, but shows mercy to those who walk with Him and repent, that's all I need you to get from this. I personally believe that this literally took place the way it says. I have, I have no reason to believe Moses is writing figuratively in chapter 6 and 7, and then all of a sudden in chapter 12 he's writing literally. It seems to me that he would write the same all the way through. But, but I just want to say this. I have friends who love Jesus Christ as much as anybody, who've given their life completely over into the hand of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they read this, they read this as a moral story. But when you read it as a moral story, you have to leave with the same thing you do when you read it literally. And if that's where you stand, I don't have any qualms with you. If you understand God is the perfect judge, and He will carry out judgment, and judgment is severe for sin, if you understand God desires mercy for those who will repent, Man, I don't have a single problem with the way you interpret Genesis. In fact, I don't have, uh, you know, God allows for a little bit of gray area here. I just, I just believe that when you look at science, you see layers uh, across the entire world that seem to be from a cataclysmic flood event all taking place at the same time. When you look at every culture, ancient culture, every single one of the cultures have the very same flood story. I think that's just too much to, to, to count as coincidence. I, I believe it points to a literal flood. But if you're here today and you say, no, I see the flood, that's fine. You shouldn't disagree with anything I say. And if we don't disagree on what Scripture says about God, we're all right. We're okay. I just want, the flood shows us how fierce God's judgment is. Listen, you can't read this and try to walk away and paint a picture of God that's not clearly what Scripture says about God. You don't need to apologize for God for carrying out judgment in a perfect way. There's not one ounce of judgment that God poured out in the flood that did not need to be poured out for payment of the sins of mankind. Well, you'd hear that. God didn't send one raindrop more than what was the payment of the sinfulness and the wickedness of mankind in the flood. And God doesn't do it today. 
when we face consequences of our sinfulness, when we face consequences for us living outside of the will of God, God never punishes us more than what our sin requires to be punished. So when we read the flood story, don't get so captivated in the fact of the numbers. Know this, God is just and perfect. And so when the flood, He perfectly judged the world. So three things, I want you to see this. First, obedience should be the principle, the primary goal of all believers. This should be our goal as we try to walk with God as Noah walked with God. To walk with God as Enoch walked with God. If we're going to walk with God, this is what it means. Listen, that my primary focus is to be obedient to God. Believers aren't looking for how far they can go and get away with it. Listen to me now. Listen, church. The Christian way, the, the walking with God does not say something like this. How far can I go and God not get mad? That's not the mind of God. That's not humility. That's not, that's not understanding the mercy that God's poured out on you. We're not looking for how close we can get to being disobedient. We want to live right there on that line between obedience and disobedience. We want to live in complete obedience to God. This is the desire of your heart if Jesus Christ has saved you. Right, you understand how merciful God is. You, you begin to understand the love that God has for you. And when you experience that kind of love, you're not looking to see how far you can push that love. I love uh, the marriage relationship that God creates because it paints a beautiful picture of how we interact with God. Right? So the marriage relationship is a picture of the church with Christ, Right? And so, how about this? In a marriage, can you imagine one of the spouses going as far as they can to push their spouse's love to get away with as much as they can to damage the marriage as much as they can without breaking it? But I want to tell you, many Christians live that way with God. They, many, many questions I get from um, believers or unbelievers is like how far they can go without sinning. How, how far do you know is too far? If you're already thinking that, you've already gone too far. How much can I get away with without God judging me or, or, or punishing me? You're already too far. If, if your mindset is your relationship with God, how much can I get away with? This is the mindset of the world in Noah's day. In fact, they, it starts with this mindset, what can I get away with? And it come, becomes so calloused and hard-hearted that you no longer even care if you get away with it. It's a slippery slope from how far can I go to having gone so far that I no longer care. And it doesn't happen overnight. It is a fast, gradual slope that you don't want to be on. Bubba, I remember when we went skiing with the youth and I tried to take Derek up to the top, but they wouldn't let me take Derek to the top of the mountain to ski down because I wasn't his dad. And so Derek asked Bubba, and Bubba is not a professional, I don't think you're a professional skier. You're not like an alpine, you know. And so, uh, so Bubba, being a good dad, 
gets on the, the chairlift and goes all the way to the top. Now, we get to the top, and this is what Bubba says to me. How do you stop? You've gone too far if you don't even know how to stop and you're about to drop into a black diamond ski slope. You with me? Quickly you find yourself in over your head. And the same is true if we live with such a cavalier attitude toward God. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, yes, I believe there's a heaven and a hell. And I want to do just enough to get into heaven. I want to do just enough to stay out of hell. Friend, if that's the way you think, you don't know God. You just don't. And I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you the basic fact that if you take God's love to mean you want to live however you want to live just as much as you can for as long as you can and escape eternal damnation, then you really don't have a love relationship with God. Because when God comes into your life, when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, He changes the way you think and the way you feel. All right? This is, the, this is the good news. That when Jesus Christ saves me, He doesn't leave me to the devices of my own heart or the way that I was before, but that He changes me and my desires. Am I still tempted? All the time. Satan's not going to stop tempting you. Satan's not going to try, uh, stop trying to... Uh, distract you from walking in the way of God. But you have to take every thought captive so that Satan doesn't even get a foothold in your life. You have to walk with obedience. What's obedience look like? Let's take Noah just for instance. Noah, I'm going to send a flood. The conversation may have went something like this. This is not scripture, by the way. I'm not, so don't write it down. Don't tell somebody else. The Bible says this. It don't. I'm going to send a flood, Noah. God, it's never rained. Build a boat, Noah. Yeah, I'm going to spare you and all of mankind through this. Bruce is probably thinking, I don't know, let's wait and see how things get. We'll see, you know, in a few months, if it looks like some clouds are starting to form, then maybe I build a boat. It hasn't rained since, since God created this place. I'm going to build a boat for a flood when it's never even, the water's never come down from the sky. Noah doesn't have this conversation, right? Noah built a boat, a real big boat that has a flat bottom because I'm going to make it rain for 40 days, 40 nights. It's going to cover the whole earth and it's going to destroy everything. This is your means of survival. This is your salvation, Noah. Make sure, I'm about to get there. That's where I'm going, so you need to hear that terminology. Noah, this is your salvation. Put your faith and trust in me. And here's the thing, if Noah doesn't trust God and put his faith in what God's telling him, Noah is dead. Friends, if we don't put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're walking dead men and women. Obedience should be the supreme goal of believers. You ask yourself this in my own life, God, do I see this evidence in my life? Do I really desire to please you above everything else? Do I care more about what you want and what you think than I even do what I want and think? Do I care more about what you want and think than, than my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Do I care more about what you think, God, than my spouse or my children? 
Because if you really want to love other people, you've got to love God first. If you don't love God first, you can't love other people right. If you've got problems in your relationships with other people, then it's probably because there's a problem in your relationship with God. I'm not saying you don't have one. I'm saying there's probably some areas you need to work on in your relationship with God because when you're right with God, you can be right with men. But when you're not right with God, it is impossible to be right with men. Have you tried to get along with other people? And yet it's what we're called to do as believers to love others. Even our enemies. We can't do that if we don't love God. In fact, if we don't love God, we won't even try. Obedience should be the supreme goal for all believers. Noah's obedient. Here's the second. That God is just. And just judgment must be made for all sin. Make, make sure you're under this. Sin is going against the will of God, and when we go against the will of God, then there must be payment for that. You say, well, I don't know that I like that arrangement where God gets to decide what's right and wrong. Well, here's the thing. It don't matter what you like. He's God. He created everything. He created you. He created me. So He has all the rights to me and you. You, you can say, well, I don't really believe in God. Well, that's all right. It doesn't matter if you believe in Him. One day you can stand before Him. It's a whole lot easier to believe in them and trust in them on this side of eternity than to stand face to face with them without having placed your trust and belief in them. God's just. He doesn't delight in punishment of sin. But I want you to understand this. God is just. When I say that, I don't mean this is a characteristic of God, like, oh, God is a just. You know, no, I mean, this is part of the essence of who God is. God is just. He is truth. And therefore, the very essence of who God is, is this perfect, just judge. And therefore, judgment must be carried out on sin. Some sin? No, all sin. All sin costs something. And it's typically more than you really want to pay. And then, notice this. God offers mercy to all who will believe. To everyone who will believe. Everyone who will trust in God through Jesus Christ. God offers mercy for you. The rest of the world has become so rampant and wicked that they no longer even care if they walk for God. Like they've gone past concerned about how far can I go. They're beyond that to such calloused, hard hearts that they no longer even seek to walk with God. They have completely destroyed the image of God in creation. Now, don't get me wrong, listen. It is distorted so bad, and yet we still see God in creation. Now, make sure you hear that. So it didn't completely eliminate it, but it did completely distort the image of God. Not only in mankind, right? You, you can still see the image of God in man, but not the way it was when God created man to be in perfect relationship and fellowship with him. As we become believers and the Holy Spirit indwells us, we become more like that. We begin to, to demonstrate and illustrate the image of God in our life, still not perfectly until 
we're glorified one day when we see Jesus face to face and stand before God. But, but all of mankind and all of creation no longer represents what God created it for. All of creation, according to this passage, all of creation has become evil, wicked. What do you mean evil or wicked? I, I mean they've completely turned away from God. But even though all of creation is wicked, God looks and finds one man who is obedient, one man who is faithful, one man who loves God. And God says, let's, let's paraphrase you. You ready? Boy, what I want to do is just wipe it all clean and start over. How many of you know that's the easiest thing to do when things get real bad? You, you may not. I'll tell you right now. I ain't going to try to fix a whole bunch of relationships. Let's just wipe it clean and, and, and start from the beginning. And God looks down, and, and that would be the right. God is righteous, and he had every right to wipe men off the face of the earth. And then he looks down and he sees one man and he has mercy on him. And because of this one man, listen, this one man and his family can't live if creation is not preserved to a certain extent. So listen, God didn't just allow animals to live so they could, but so humans could live, right? You with me? The earth's going to be destroyed. They're going to come off of a ship where there's no vegetation, where everything's been, well, they got to eat to live. So God sustains creation so that he can sustain Noah and his wife. I mean, God could have just wiped all the animals out, left Noah, and then created new animals. Noah needs them to survive during the flood and after the flood. And so God establishes a covenant with him. Do you, do you see the mercy of God? Don't, don't be so quick to only see the judgment of God in the flood to miss the mercy of God. And God still offers mercy today. He still offers mercy today. Listen, Noah was not perfect, right? You already know, like, let me just give you a little, like, uh, at the end of Marvel movies, you stick around and they give you a little glimpse into what the next one's going to be. Let me just give you a glimpse. It ain't going to be too long before Noah is naked and drunk. He wasn't a perfect man, but he's a man who loved God. God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who are humble and repentant. That's what God desires. Just people who are willing to say, God, I, I don't have it together. God, I'm not perfect. God, I try to serve you, but I, fell, I fall short. And God looks on a, on a humble heart and says, it's okay. I forgive you, and I'm also going to give you the strength to turn away from that. I'm going to walk with you in the midst of that that you've given to me. Do you understand this? You can just give your sin to God. You can give your weakness to God. And God may not completely take it away. Like Paul, he had some weakness physically that God didn't take away so that it might keep him humble and keep him in the recognition that he needed God daily. And that might be true with us. Sometimes God takes things away instantly and sometimes God gives us grace to get through those things. In both cases, God's merciful. We serve a merciful God. It hasn't changed today. 
God's still the same yesterday, today, will be tomorrow. God still has to judge sin. God still shows mercy to the sinner who is repentant. In fact, you may come in today, you might be watching your Facebook and you say, boy, when I look at my life, when I, when I just take inventory of my life, I mess up so much. I've been walking outside of the will of God. I've gotten so far from God that I don't even know if I even hear from God anymore in my walk. Know this. If you're willing to turn to God, He's willing to faithfully receive you. Open arms. Not to condemn you, but so you might be reconciled to Him. So that you might walk with Him again. So that you might hear from Him again. So that you might feel Him again. You ever got so distant from God in a season in your life where you no longer really felt God? If you haven't, then I would just submit, give it a little time. There are times when I just sense the Spirit of God and feel the Spirit of God and feel the closeness that I have with God. And then there are times where I feel like, God, where are you? I don't, need, I don't feel you. He's there. Offering mercy to all who will believe. My question today is this. If you come in today or you're watching today and the truth is you've never really believed, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Or you say, no, I, I was a believer, I was baptized, but I've just gotten so far away from God, I don't even know if I hear from Him anymore. Then know today that a simple profession of faith and genuine repentance, what's that? That I just confess it to God, and that genuinely within my heart, there's a desire to change. You give those things to God and God will wrap you in His arms. He will give you the biggest hug you've ever had and He'll begin to speak and talk to you again. I would submit He's already speaking but maybe our hearts have gotten too hard to even hear. I pray this for myself and I invite you to pray the same thing. Not right now, but I would just encourage you. I pray all the time, God, remove this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Because we live in such a world that it's so easy for our hearts to become hardened. God, remove this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. I want to be able to sympathize. I want to be able to empathize. I want to be able to love the way God loves. I want my heart to be a heart of flesh, one that's soft. You know, here's the thing. When you do that, you take a chance that your heart may get broken sometimes. But living with a hard heart is no way to live. Here's the practical applications. Just three. The first is this. Sin will always lead you to destruction if there's no repentance. Whether you're a believer, whether you're an unbeliever. If you're living in a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God and there is no repentance in your life, it will lead to judgment. God looks on the world and here's the thing God sees. God sees there is no repentance in the hearts of these folks. That, that they will never come back. There's only one way that we can move forward so that the world might be blessed 
in relationship with God. And that's through the one man who walks with God. Here's the second thing I want you to see. That when we look at the flood, when you think about the flood, here's what you see. Here's the picture. The flood shows us the judgment and the wrath of God poured out on mankind while God's mercy is demonstrated toward one man, Noah. This is what the flood's about. All of God's judgment and all of God's wrath, which is perfectly right, it is the right amount, not an ounce more than is needed for the sin of mankind. The, the wrath of God and the judgment of God is poured out on all of mankind while one man receives mercy from God. Pastor, what does that mean to us today, those who are, are Christians or, or those who are living after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the cross is. I want you to see the stark contrast between the cross and the flood because at the cross, mercy is poured out on all of mankind while the very judgment and wrath of God is poured out on Jesus Christ. One man and God. Sin requires payment. Requires judgment. And so what did Jesus Christ receive on the cross? Not just lashes from the Romans, not just nail-pierced hands. What Jesus Christ received on the cross was the judgment and the wrath of God for the sin of the world. Why? So that mankind might receive His mercy. Here's what I want you to, to notice. God doesn't change. It's the same God. It's the same God. Sinfulness re requires judgment. But here's what God did. He sent Jesus Christ to receive the judgment that you deserved so that you might receive the mercy that only Christ was worthy to receive. Somebody should say amen right there. Christ received all the wrath of God. Every once in a while I'll go back and I watch the passion of the Christ. Not because I'm a glutton for punishment, but because it's the closest thing I've ever seen to what probably took place. And every once in a while I need to be reminded that that was the payment for my sin. God does not take sin lightly. It is a dangerous thing to be an unbeliever. It is a really dangerous thing to be a believer and to be walking in willful, open rebellion to God because God has taken your sin as a believer and poured the wrath for that sin out on His Son, Jesus Christ. It is a dangerous thing to be a believer and to walk in sin. And so just as Mankind receives salvation from one man and a wooden boat. So mankind today can receive salvation from one man and a wooden cross. I invite you to pray with me. I'm just going to pray just a prayer of repentance. You don't have to repeat it out loud. You can just pray it right where you are. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're a believer, but the truth is you, you've kind of gotten far from God. 
How easy is it to come back? It's easy because God's made it possible. And here's what God says. If you're faithful to confess it and repent and believe in your heart, then I'm faithful to forgive you. Or maybe the truth is you've never really given your heart to Jesus. And I want you to know today God loved you so much that just as he spared mankind in the flood through one man, so he has spared us. He has given us the opportunity of salvation and relationship in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You put your faith and trust in him. God forgives you for your sins. The Spirit of God comes to live inside your heart and your life. And you are sealed by that Spirit to know that you will spend eternity in the presence of Christ. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. I know I'm a sinner. And I know I've fallen so short of the glory you deserve. But today, I confess my sin to you. Lord, you see the wrong I've done. And you've promised that if I would just confess it with my mouth, believe in my heart that Jesus Christ died for my sin and rose again, that you would forgive me. And so today I confess my sin and I ask your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross. I believe he rose again from the dead. I believe that he's in heaven right now. And I believe that one day he's coming back. So I put my trust in Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. All through Jesus.